Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super fast three-player online poker set and go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 139 on the 1hour.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, Simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on OneOuter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then it's best to email questions at OneOuter.com or you can post them in the Facebook group or tweet them and we will get to them eventually. Alex, episode 139, um, you are on your computer mic today, uh, but you're sounding okay my end, so we'll see how this goes on the recording, uh, keeping up the tradition of the OneOuter.com podcast, um, you know, we bootstrap it and mask and tape it together, um, so Alex, where are you just now, East Coast, West Coast, um, jail, where are you? Not in jail, thankfully, and <laughs> thank you guys for having me here. As per usual, I'm really happy to be here. Sorry about the microphone situation. Uh, couldn't get it working with my computer today, but I think you all can hear me, and yeah, I guess we're mask, masking tape it, as Barry so eloquently put it. <laughs> I'm in Queens. Um, I came here to spend the 4th with my girlfriend, so that was pretty nice. If I sound a little tired today guys I, forgive me I, I wasn't able to write yesterday so I wrote today and I try to get 2,000 words done a day and so I had to get 4k done today uh, and uh, that's that's pretty hard to do right in the morning 4,000 words uh, I got the 3.5k before we went on 3.6k but it's uh you know, Barry, there's so few people who actually get to do what they love in this world. I, I feel really bad when I don't write every day. Yeah. As much stuff is going on, you just have to do whatever it is you love, whatever. Even if it makes you no money, you gotta you got to do it, whatever that is, taking care of your kids, or tending to your garden, whatever makes you happy. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm happy, but I'm a little, uh, not, not uh, if, I'm enthusiastic to hear your questions, even if I don't sound like it. Yeah, I think I think what it comes down. I've been reading stuff recently, and I think it's gratitude. If you can practice gratitude, that's a big thing. Um, if you can be grateful, and it's like if you're grateful for what you got rather than thinking of what you don't got, like you're more likely to be happier more of the time than not. But I think what I've learned more and more, especially as the last, I'd say, last four or five years is you can't be uh, this constant state of happiness or whatever, you know, or like 100% great mood all the time. I, I don't think it's healthy as well to actually be like that. I think, you you know, because if you think of it when you're frustrated and stuff, that's when you work things out and when you sort of like move on to the next stage. You know, if you just stayed happy and oblivious all the time, it's 
you know, it's, it's strange. I don't. Th- I, I think it's hard when you're ambitious and you want to do stuff and you've got goals and uh, targets you want to set and achieve as well. It's all. It's all like this big melting pot of like emotions, frustration, like energy, physical health, all that stuff. And I think it's just you get older. It's just managing it. I think that's the best anybody can do. And the more I re- read, it seems to all center on gratitude and being grateful. And it sounds, you know, even when I first read, it, I was like, oh, this, this, you know, I don't want to sound negative or that, but oh, this stuff, you know, like feeling, yeah, I'm grateful, this and that. But when you actually break it down and stop and be grateful what you've got in your life, it really does kind of, I don't know, like chill you out or that, but it it's really, it goes back to, I remember you always saying to me, like when people moan around, you know, some of your students moan about, like, oh, I made it down to like 13 players left and I, you know, I lost a flip or whatever. And you used to just say, look, there's people in parts of the world that don't even have running water let alone you know internet access sort of things and that's an extreme example but i do think it's in this world the way we've became it's like we expect everything to be perfect and work instantly all the time and it just doesn't work like that so yeah i think gratitude's a a good way to sort of go through your day i think you know just be grateful for what you've got i agree and i i was um there's this wonderful program if uh if you haven't heard of it before, it's called Blinkist. And what it does is it's essentially more powerful cliff notes about nonfiction books because so many nonfiction books come out now and so many of them have 38 pages that are absolutely incredible and 263 pages of filler mm-hmm. to make a whole book. And what they do is take the 38 pages that are actually really valuable they take what's good in the other filler pages and they make it into a 20-page shortened version of the book. And I I love these because it's really good whatever somebody... It makes you sound smarter than you are because whatever book somebody brings up, if you can remember a few things from the Blinkist version of it, you can have a nice conversation with them. And... I almost feel guilty. I have to start informing people, no, I don't read all these books. I just <laughs> read. On my cell phone, I'll read a few Blinkist versions a day. Yeah. Uh, I was going over one book that I really liked. Another thing I really like about the program, the Blinkist program, is you can go over books you already read and get some reminders of what was really important. And there was this book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, which is really, it's a self-help book for people who hate self-help books. And I I really think the guy, I I don't think he needed to add as much vulgarity to it as he did. I, I... there's some sometimes you read a book where you go, yeah, that was really necessary, or that was that person's true artistic expression. I felt like he did that in an effort to catch blog readers and stuff, but it works really well. And one thing he said there is, pain is your body's way of telling you there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday I was in quite a bit of pain, and once I paid attention to it, it was because I hadn't run in a few days, and once I ran, I felt fine. And I was really grateful for that pain. And what I've been focusing on lately is 
I feel as if most people my age have been sold this bill of goods where, like you said, you're supposed to be happy all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up happy? Mm-hmm. I know I know many people from where I grew up who are happy all the time. They're called heroin addicts. It's uh, it's a very unnatural state. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good for you. Uh, you're supposed to. When I have been in pain and I've re- removed that chemically and then medically induced myself to be happy all the time, that's when my life has gone really poorly. Whereas the last couple years have not been very good to me in many facets, but. There was this persistent pain of what what am I not doing right? And it just finally hit me like a rock the last couple months. I'm not writing. All I all I really love to do is write and I'm not writing, mm-hmm. which and everybody does the oh you have to play poker. Think of the it's the silver spoon you got as an adult that you can play poker and make money. And first of all, if I break down the math for you, as we've done on this show, it's not as much money as you think. Uh, second of all, it's my life. It's not, it's not yours. I'll, I'll do what I please. And, yeah, I still have to pay my bills. I still have to take care of my mother and so on. But I can do that on my own terms. But the thing that's really helpful for me, which going back to what we were talking about, Barry, about gratitude, the thing that's really helped me is I I did come from poverty, so very simple things like a meal out are really meaningful to me because I remember not being able to eat in a restaurant. I remember dating and having to find a way around going to a restaurant. I had to cook at home and I had to do things like that or when I was hungry myself I would I don't think I'd skip meals but I'd nibble on something really small uh, just because it was cheaper or I'd spend three bucks on something just horrible looking from a gas station because it was cheaper than getting uh, the ingredient well it was cheaper than eating out, and I didn't have the time because I was working so often to spend an hour cooking something natural, and I also had the poverty of education. I had no education on how to do that, Mm. and so really simple things are really meaningful to me, but I, I meet so many people my age these days, and I feel like they've been sold this bill of goods where you're supposed to be happy all the time. You're supposed to have a very high-paying, secure job that's meaningful to you. And look, not most people don't do a job that they absolutely adore. I There are many days I don't want to play poker, I don't want to talk about poker. But you show up because I couldn't believe the math of this when somebody finally broke it down. If you divide a week, a week is 168 hours. If you divide it in three parts, one part for sleep, uh, one part for recreation, one part for work, it's perfectly 56 hours. Yeah. So yeah. if you work 40 hours a week that and you sleep 56 hours a week, that means you have 72 hours, if I'm doing the math, the quick mental math right, yeah, that's right. 56 plus 16. Come on, Barry. 
Yeah, 72. Yeah, 72. So you have 72 hours to do what you really want in life, and that, to me, is where you find your meaning. And you can... A job can have very remedial meaning and very remedial wages, and you can still live, live a good life. I, I have friends in New York that are going to France for $340 here pretty soon, and they're staring at an Airbnb for $40 a night. They can get roses for their girlfriend on Valentine's Day for 12 bucks. I remember when that was 60 mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it. There's many opportunities out there, but, well, to be quite frank, it's how advertisers get you. You don't have this perfect body. You don't have this perfectly tailored suit. You don't have this, and you don't have that. You don't have this, and that's how they get you. That's how they make perfectly beautiful women feel ugly. That's how they make very successful, good men who are good fathers feel like they're nothing and just get you to buy their crap. And, yeah, it's uh, many people are strong-willed and they can get past it, but I understand not everybody can. It's It was really strange, Barry. This is something I just want to share because it was so interesting and just so quintessentially Brooklyn. Uh, I went to this 4th of July block party, and I literally had to climb up a ladder, over a roof, and down a fire escape six stories to get to this party. Mm -hmm. I I thought, what in the world, right? Those are the things you read about in books, and you you go, like, like that would ever happen. But no, there was no way to get to this back area but this way, and I'm getting the idea they didn't really, they weren't really supposed to have the party there. And it was cool. They had a DJ actually playing really good hip-hop. And it was chill. But the kids were, I think they call them hipsters now, right? They they dress a certain way. They talk about certain topics. And there was nobody, normally the people they called hipsters in Costa Rica would drive me nuts. Uh, just because they just poo-pooed everything. And they talked a lot of crap about everything without really doing anything to change their lives. All the all those kids were fine. They were nice. Obviously, in every party, there's people you meet where it's, okay, that was a little off-putting, but whatever. And uh, I had a good time. But I was thinking, these people, they dress a certain way, they talk a certain way, they have certain topics, and it's not bad. It's just, it's funny to me, because I bet these were the same people who in high school felt like outcasts, and yet they, they have their own group, they have their own rituals, they have their own thing. And it's, it's strange to me how humans, the, all these, you know, I have no problem with jocks, hipsters, any, any group. Uh, I, I don't really feel like any group. But it, it's weird how people do have to get into a group. It's kind of tribalism. You see it in politics these days. Nobody actually wants to get anything done. The the right just wants to piss off the left, and the left just wants to piss off the right. They they draw on the fury, and they cash their paychecks, and everybody goes home with nothing getting done. And I worry about that, because humans are very good these days at making you feel insecure, 
to get you to do what they want. And if I feel it, I know I feel insecure about many things at times. And I would consider myself a fairly resilient human being. I, I would guess most of the population could not have done what I've done in my life. If I feel it, I can't imagine how profoundly most people feel it. Mm-hmm. And that has to be tough. And, yeah, it all goes to your point. Sorry, I've really been thinking about this lately. Gratitude. If The way I guess you short-circuit that is you just practice gratitude. You thank people for small gestures and not to get all circle of the earth, peace, love and understanding, but service and charity is a great way to short circuit it. Everybody's out there trying to get something. If you give back, you you short circuit the materialistic part of you. Mm -hmm. And I find actually the more you give, the more you get back. Yeah, there is something spooky in that, you know, whether you believe in karma or any other similar sort of things, there is, I've found when you're good to people, it does kind of, well, my experience is it does come back tenfold, you know, it's, it does. And I, I think a lot of it goes to do with, you know, if you were analysing that from a scientific sort of point of way rather than a cosmic, spiritual, uh, karma sort of way, I think it's just peace of mind. I think if you feel that you're doing good and in the world and helping people and giving back and being a you know doing what you can and um, whether that's the strangers or your like immediate family and stuff I think you'll feel better about yourself which will then make you more likely to go and do good stuff in your life whether it's energy to go and like for you write writing or doing multiple tasks or projects and, and stuff like that and dealing with bumps in the road as well. I think, you know, I think there is something in it. I I guess it expands your network as well. I've had some medical bills come up recently and obviously money is always tight around the World Series of Poker. If I want if I want to play for a decent percentage of myself in these tournaments, I have to put up my own money and that was pretty difficult after the divorce. And I noticed my network was much larger than I expected because I had helped people at different times and I hadn't even really thought of it. I I, I wasn't doing it to get anything back. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And there's there's this great man I really like to listen to and he always asked parents, what do you want your child to be? And parents are usually confused because it's a bit of an open-ended question, but when he defines it, what, what, what do you want them to have? What do you want them to be? Do you want them to be smart, successful, uh, brilliant, uh, happy? And unprompted, even if he doesn't give those prompts, Almost nobody says good, but when you think about it, if, you, if you're a good, like, something that's been rattling around my mind, I don't know if I've heard it somewhere, but a gentleman has no regrets. If you're a gent, quite literally a gentle man, mm-hmm. you treat people well, you do not wrong people, 
they can take everything away from you. They can't take away your dignity. You you can you can leave this earth and know you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And 99 times out of 100, you're not going to get robbed. You're not going to be wronged. Or if you are wronged, you're going to bounce back very quickly because one person may turn on you, but there's going to be seven or eight that know you for who you really are. And they're going... Maybe the little help they offer is very small to them, but all of that added together, if you've been helping people, all of it added together ends up being quite a bit, and it puts a little bit of spring in your step, and then you keep giving. And I think this is what they really search for in altruistic capitalism, which is, obviously we discussed what's really bad about capitalism earlier, which is preying on your insecurities to get you to buy a certain product, but there's also, you provide a service for somebody that's our, a product that is incredibly helpful, and the price is very reasonable, and then they benefit because they get the service or product, and you benefit because obviously you make a profit, and there's a lot of people that do that, that just, the more you help, the more it comes back to you. The more you try to help and add value to people's lives, the more it comes back to you. So, yeah. And we did talk in a bit of a circular fashion. Sorry, guys. You know how the One Outer podcast goes. Well, I was just, well, we'll keep the circle going. We'll just close it now by saying, let's do our bit now. And, well, you can't. You can help out people for free who send in questions. So, let, let's get down to those. Um, right, the first one I have on my notes here is an email from Mika. Now, it was quite a long email, but Alex will know once I give him a little taster of it, I think. Uh, he said just to paraphrase it and you'd be able to take it from there, Alex. Um, so, basically, Mika writes in and says, Thank you for the video. Keep them coming. Um, it was about your $1 video that you put up, the tournament, the knockout tournament video yes i i actually barry i think i can take it from here okay this gets a little complicated so i just want to make sure on you go i get this right there's been a lot of people that have asked me from the book and also in my videos so let's say you have i'll give you the hypothetical and you'll see what the problem is which is, let's say you have six, seven of diamonds, the board comes three of diamonds, two of diamonds, ten of clubs. You see that, the guy calls. You know for a fact this guy would have raised with a set, he would have raised with an overpair, he would have raised with a good flush draw. That's generally his M.O. By the way, that's an M.O. that's shared by many, many poker players when they're 35, 45 big blinds deep. The turn is the jack of clubs. You decide, let's say you bet the size of the pot. Well, the complete, the, the, you bet, you betting the size of the pot that needs to actually let's change the turn card. Let's say the turn is a uh, offsuit two. 
And I, I just want to make this as simple as possible. So now it's 10, 3, 2, 2, one, two diamonds. You have six, seven of diamonds. Just a bare flush draw. You think there's no chance of him having a better flush draw. There's no chance of him having a set. Uh, his range is pretty much capped at one pair, a 10, nines, eights, seven, sixes, obviously a little less because you have a six and seven in your hand. Would have raised a flush draw, et cetera. Uh, he doesn't have a two in his calling range. Preflop turns an offsuit two. You bet the size of the pot. Now, something I argued in the Myth of Poker Talent, and this is one of the sections I almost didn't include. There were many sections that got cut from the Myth of Poker Talent because there, I know they work based on database analysis and remedial equity calculations. I can't explain perfectly why they work, which means should the game ever shift, you'll be left, and this is what happens with a lot of poker books, is are just a lot of poker strategy in general, is they give you the play, they don't tell you how they came up with the play, the game shifts, you keep executing the play, the algorithm no longer works, and it actually might find a way to maximize your losses, which is why there's many people that are flash in the pan students. Now, I didn't want to do that with the Myth and Poker Talent. I sought to explain every play that I created and then tell you throughout the book, do not trust me, do not trust anyone, trust yourself. This was one play I could not perfectly explain, but it was so important you needed to know. So I always came up with this hypothetical where the guy checks out of turn and the dealer informs you, if you check, he will be forced to check behind you and you will see the river for free. Would you like to see the river card? My contention in the book is no, you never want that because if you check and there's nine cards out of 46 you haven't seen that are good for you, that means you're going to hit the river 19.5% of the time. So by checking there, you're going, assuming your seven high is never good, when it misses, you're going, yes, I lose 80% of the time on the river, which is obviously not what you want. If you desired to check there and see the river, that's because you wanted the thrill of making the flush. You wanted to turn over the hand and rake in the pot. My contention was, you bet, let's say you bet the size of the pot, very large bet. Does your bet need to work 50% of the time? Is it just like if you bet $1 to win $1? Do you do 1 over 2 and it's 50%? My argument is no, you don't. Because on the river, you have a get-out-of-jail-free card 19.5% of the time. So let's round it up to 20 just to be simple. So 20% of the time you make this flush, let's say, assume in this hypothetical world you somehow know this flush is always good. You know the guy is never raising on the turn because he never has a two and he never raises with one pair. He never calls with one pair on the flop to raise on the turn, although that is a cash game style play that is usable. A lot of people don't do it. Uh, most tournament players have never done that in their life. So... You just know your bet actually needs to work 50% of the time, but an additional 20% of the time, you got to get out of jail free card on the river. So 
in the book, I said, rough estimate, your bet needs to work about 30% of the time, which is pretty crazy. You bet the size of the pot, and it doesn't need to work a third of the time. Now, Micah's problem, and many people's problem with this, is it is not perfect. I never said it was perfect. In fact, if you pay really good attention, I've never said I was good at poker either. I just tell you what works. In my experience, what works with my students. Now, this is why it is imperfect. One, we have no idea how much money you're going to make on the river. That would mean the bet actually needs to work less. Number two, the size of the pot you win on the river is bigger than the pot uh, than the pots he wins. Uh, it, it's bigger when you win. Uh, as a, so it doesn't just work out to 50 minus 30, 20. Obviously, this is a gross oversimplification. Number three, you're assuming he never raises on the turn. This is obviously a gross oversimplification. It's possible he just called with queens, saw another card he liked, and he just jams. It's possible in my first hypothetical where the turn was a jack, it's possible he made two pair, and he jams. It's possible, for some reason, he has ace-deuce suited when we didn't think he did it in our first hypothetical. So he jams. So it's not exactly 30% because there's times he raises. Generally, it also assumes, 30% would also assume you get no money on the river. Uh, it just comes on the river, and you check, he checks, you, you take down the pot. And even that's not perfect because now the pot size is different. It is a gross oversimplification, but all I wanted from it uh, is generally you will see overbetting withdraws, overbetting with your made hands there. If you put that in, and it, you, people are finding this with PO solver, PIO solver, however you pronounce it, there's a lot of there's a lot of times for overbets. People are finding this the way. I was doing it was just card runners EV is just the profits were way higher because if you think about this in a really remedial sense, the guy's range is one pair. You're about to overbet and you have a get out of jail free card that offsets uh, how often the bet needs to work. So you to me, you, you overbet the pot. The best thing the guy can have is a 10 let's say you just bet the size of the pot, that needs to work 50% of the time. Generally, the people are going to bet fold more than 50% of the time. So it almost becomes, the, the additional flush draw almost becomes a free roll attached on top of it, and that gives you a chance to win a big pot. Many times you'll hear the digression. We don't know how this guy always gets his chips at the beginning of tournaments. This is typically the way I do get them is, there's a couple times I just double barrel, and most people assume a triple barrel's coming because I've worked hard enough on my game. I know when to fire a triple barrel there as well as a bluff. Uh, there, a lot of times I hit on the river, and I find a way to get a really serious value bet in there, and that gives me enough chips to start putting this... It gives me the chips to start messing with the table a little bit more. I can free bet, whereas perhaps before a three bet was a bit more meaningful to me. And generally, 
I have not taught this to anyone and had them go, I want to check back more, or I really like just betting half pot, which will get the obligatory call. I've always had people, especially the other thing I always had them doing is when they did have ace two there, they overbet as well, or they bet the size of the pot uh, for balancing purposes. And obviously, it's like a game of rock, paper, scissors. You want to make sure you're choosing the right bet at the right time with the right hand. But this ends up throwing a very valuable wrench in the cogs of the typical reg you are playing against. And I think it's very worthwhile. Is it perfect? No. I've run the math by a bunch of people. I've gotten a bunch of different ways to explain it to the point where I put a very simple, but I thought it was so valuable. I kept in the myth of poker talent. I keep bringing it up, even though I'm not the world's best at explaining it. Because like I said in the book, and like I've said to you guys many times here, I'm just a normal guy who I think has figured out a few more things from poker because I've spent so long in this industry than most people, and I'm sharing it with you. I hope that makes it more sense. Okay. And uh, the next question, Alex, is from George. Hello, can you tell me about playing 20 big blind stack, but when around 20 big blind stack is also average stack. Should we be less shoving our stack over opens? Should we do more calling or three bets? To be clear, I mean okay, have... Uh, sorry, the ways. To be clear, I mean okay, we have a 20 big blind stack, but so does most of the other players left in the tournament as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your question, George. The big mistakes I see people make uh, with 20 big blind stacks is actually not rejamming enough. If everybody has a 20 big blind stack, nobody's really in the mood uh, to call that often because it's their tournament life. Whereas when you're rejamming a 20x stack, normally what you're worried about is a guy with 80x who just wants to risk it. And if you did just take a flyer with 8-9 of diamonds, that might mathematically come out to being correct, but you're pushing a very thin edge into a guy that might want to gamble with you with Ace-7 of hearts, or the disaster, he has eight, Ace-8 suited, and he has you dominated. With 20x, people think much more about their decisions. You jam the small pair, the suited connector, etc., you really want that guy folding king-queen. If it's for his tournament and he says, hey, I got about the same stack everybody has here, I think I can level up into the money, he's really likely to fold those weak aces and that king-queen. So I really focus on the rejam these days. Opening, you're not going to find anybody who folds the big blind anymore. So this opens up problems and this opens up opportunities. If you know the guy is extremely fit or fold, you could, it's fine to 2x and then c-bet. It actually does make things a little bit more profitable for them, but it also is better for your stack size. If you know the guy's really fit or fold and you want to increase variance, you can raise bigger 
as big as you think you can raise before he starts jamming into you, and then you can see bet and pick up the pot. This is very variance-driven. A lot of times you're going to go from 20 big blinds to 14. You're going to also not want to, with these stacks, just flat in position. That was the biggest mistake I made. I did cash the main event last year. The biggest mistake I made was I I didn't misread my stack. I guess I was just tilted or something. I called with 24x with a uh, a suited ace with in middle position when I and I flopped the flutcher on C bet and everybody folded. The two other players folded and right after I won that pot, I thought that was so dumb, especially on the bubble of the main event when there was there were guys with. Point seven of a big blind holding on that could have easily been busted any hand mm-hmm. but generally you just don't want to be calling off you want to be the guy applying pressure and moving all in I, I hope those tips help you George good luck to you okay and uh, we will speak about that end because you are playing the main event next week isn't it or is it the weekend yeah it's uh Actually, tomorrow I fly out there. So, and then okay. the 8th I recover. Well, I, the 8th I just rest. I'm going to be meeting, actually, uh, at 3 p.m. in the Rio, at the at the Rio Starbucks, the one near the WSOP area. I'm just meeting whoever comes out there. So, if nobody comes out there, great. I'll just keep reading my Kindle. If uh, I don't think that's going to happen. If a bunch of us come out, great. Let's all just talk cards and have a coffee. You can say hi to me there on the 8th. Uh, This assumes I don't get flight delays going from East Coast to West Coast, so of course there's about a 20% shot I'll actually (laughs) show up. That's the way to say that. Yeah, and and then the 9th I'm going to be playing. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, we can talk about that today. Okay. Right, let's do the last question and then talk main event teams. Let's do that. Um, okay. All right. Th- this one last question for this episode today is from Phil. Um, hey guys, my question for you is on flopping big hands and big draws during early stages of tournaments, or say when we are playing seventy to hundred big blinds deep. Just for discussion, we flop bottom set, but there are two or three flush cards. Second example, we flop the nut flush draw in position. Player bets. We raise and he four bets the flop. I pick these examples just for the type of situations where we have big hands but are facing aggression. Do we look to go with our hand on the flop or play the turn in river? Thanks. What was this gentleman's name? Sorry. Phil. Phil. Hey, Phil, thank you for your question. Helmuth. <laughs> yes. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, Sorry about that. I was, I was going to call him, uh, I, I, I had some other name I knew was wrong, but yeah, sorry about that. I was thinking about the question. It was so interesting. It got me lost in thought. Forgot my previous note. The first thing was with bottom set and there's a flusher out there, here's the thing. If you're playing deep stacked, you're playing against a bunch of people, you see bit out there, you get a couple callers, or you get one caller even, the flush draw comes in, you bet, and the guy raises. What's the guy really raising? 
Now, here, here are, this is something I struggle with in my lessons, which is, so the board, let's, let's do a hypothetical. Board comes three of clubs, five of diamonds, seven of diamonds. You have pocket threes. Uh, turns the ten of diamonds. You, you lead, the guy raises. The guy goes, well, he, these are the notes I get from my players. He knows that this is a really tough board for me to continue on. This really hits his range as a flatter. I think he saw me fold earlier because he's so it, just a lot of stuff that neat, could be part of some poker supercomputer to make the right decision. But as human beings, we should focus on the right questions, which is if I'm going to call and I it's to show my hand down, I assume, what am I beating? And in this case, you have to ask yourself, what's just below a set? Because whatever is just below is obviously what mm -hmm. you hope the guy has. So here it's two pair. Do, do we really think the guy has that many 10-7s he's raising? Do, do we really think he waited on the turn with 7-5 to raise? That's a pretty goofy play to do when the flush draw comes in. So that's not many combinations to begin with. Second question is, can we count all those combinations? The answer is no. Now, what hands beat us would be the second answer. And how many of those combinations... Sec the second question, I apologize. In this one, does he have flush shots? Yes, that makes perfect sense. Does he have higher sets? Yes, that makes perfect sense. Uh, maybe not perfect sense. You would think he would probably raise them on the flop but a set of tens makes perfect sense. How many combinations of these can we count? Well, we can count all the flush draw combinations. We can count all the tens combinations, maybe just one of each, the sevens and fives. So now we have a problem, which is we can list a lot of hands that beat us. We can count most of those combos. We can't list many hands that we beat, and we can't count half of those combos. So this becomes a very easy situation to fold, and if the guy shows you bluffs, such is life. Uh, it doesn't happen most of the time. There's, there's none of you listening to this that have watched as much poker as I have, that have studied as much poker as I have. You might be rolling your eyes right now because, oh, you won a tournament in the last nine months, so you know much better than me, or you won one big tournament once a couple years ago. I'm telling you, I look at the databases, I watch the data, I watch the games play out, the number of guys who can raise there as a bluff is are very few. So this first-hand category fits into the second-hand category, which is you bet until you find out differently. Do not go in with the expectation you're going to stack somebody. It's really difficult to stack somebody to seven, 70 to 100 big blinds. Generally, that expectation comes from at the beginning when people would go broke with two pair. I was just playing in Laughlin, Nevada. This is... there. There's not a pro in sight at that, at that place. Mm -hmm. Except for, uh, you know, guys that fell high off their perch, like Alex Fitzgerald. But uh, other than me, there was nobody really there who played for a living, and yet they know not to raise with two pair there. They, they're just... 
they're they're playing cards and they have some know-how. So if everybody has a little know-how and they clearly see that two pair is not something you value on the three flush board with several possible sets, you bet until you hear accordingly. And it's not that tough of a fold if you bet and you get raised. Everybody says, it's so sick, this is such a tough fold. All I hear is entitlement when I hear that. That's, I hit a set, I deserve to make a lot of money off my set. Mm -hmm. That's not based in reality. Now with the flush draw, the flush draw is a really nice hand to push with. The real value, many guys will not raise suited aces from early position. When I teach people how to play poker, I don't have them opening those hands. Now, I will open those hands because I'm playing with tougher, tougher opposition, and this is the range I want to build on many mid-range boards, which is if there's a flush draw and I overbet, I want them to be thinking of sets. I want them to be thinking about flush draws in one time out of ten, just complete nothing. And how I balance that is up to me at that given time in that table, I don't look for perfect balance because the only way to exploit another player is to become exploitable yourself. Otherwise, you no longer achieve perfect balance. Perfect balance is supposed to be you're going up against a supercomputer who applies perfect game theory. That is most likely not what you're going to be coming up against. Now, I like betting with those flush draws, but if you have a guy that wants to go to the felt when you're 70 to 100 big blinds deep, he generally has two pair. If you're lucky, he has an over pair. And a lot of times that over pair is going to be blocking your over cards. And many times he has a set. The set has a redraw, the two pair has a redraw. You're not really in great shape either of these ways. So a lot of times I overbet a flush draw. I get raised and I fold, even though I have decent odds. It's not good enough. Uh, the next time I have a set, a lot of times guys will chase that feeling and then bust to me. Many times I play the entire night, that situation doesn't come up. Or for whatever reason, the guy gets a text message and he doesn't apply the play that he just applied five, uh, five hours ago. So it's not perfect. Poker isn't perfect. But I think both of these categories fall under fire and tell you here differently. Uh, hope this helps you, Phil. Good luck to you. The day of the day of the day isn't it? That's what it comes down to. <laughs> it, it, comes down, it, it comes down to people always come up with these, well, this is how I think about poker, so I think he's thinking about poker like that, and it's, yeah. um, oh, that's, that's not how it works. It's, uh, you can never know what, especially the amount of different players you play, like what every different person's ever thinking at that given time as well. And it's just, right, and you, your best bet is to come up with generalities, to accept your, you're applying many small edges, and to just make as many hours in the day as you can to push those small edges. I remember some hedge fund manager on like CNBC getting asked about stats and stuff, and he he was like a quant guy, all numbers, and he said to the guy just like live on air, he was like, "Look, stop trying to forecast in crystal ball." He's like, "Strap on some balls and read the data," and it always stuck in my mind. <laughs> it's just like so good. 
Yeah, just read the... Well, that's... Get to work is the underlying concept, and it's uh, not, not, not towards any of these people who are asking questions because they're seeking answers and writing them down and applying them, but there's many people that won't even... Uh, people say, I've got questions, and I say, well, you're going to have to get on your email, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to send it to questions at com, and then I will answer it to you for free using my decade-plus of experience. Yeah. And believe it or not, that's still too much work for some people. Seriously. That's a bridge too far. That's a bridge too far. <laughs> and, but, uh, yeah, you know, they uh, these are the same people. Well, uh, anyway, I'm yeah. done. Okay. Right, let's, the last few minutes, let's talk about your main event, uh, Deep Run, that's the way to happen. This, uh, forget the data. Let's, uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about uh, your main event. How are you feeling coming up to it? Let's talk about gratitude again. You're, you're actually a way to play the main event, which some poker players will never do in their life, you know, um, exactly. let alone multiple times and stuff. So what's your thoughts, feelings, etc. going in and your plans for it? Well... I'm very grateful to be playing. It's a little strange to me because I have less of myself than I'm used to because, quite frankly, I need the money. And one good thing about my job is whenever I want to accept less risk and make more money, I can sell more percentages at markup. I have a really good relationship with people that buy pieces of May, I sold at 1.45. I probably could have gotten 1.7 if I wanted to, but I just didn't feel that was appropriate given the long-term relationships I want to work out with my shareholders to uh, find a very simplified term. I was on Twitter seeing people selling at 2.53, and, uh, well, Dennis told me about it, and then I looked it up, and I couldn't really believe it, which, uh, go read that book I just wrote with my buddy, Daniel Casper, Sharp Staking. You'll, you'll see why that's not such a hot idea. And uh, he's got the numbers to back it up. Uh, again, this is always an imperfect science, but haven't we've sent it out to everybody asking for refutations, thoughts, and haven't... Uh, I think we're right. Pretty sure we're right. Uh, I'm, you can buy the book in physical format right now. That's what we have going on. And, yeah, to try to sound upbeat when maybe I'm a little maybe a, a little fuzzy today, I am really, really grateful to be playing the main event for any anything because I've never missed a main event since I turned 21. And that's pretty astounding given just how life is. Things come up. Fi- financial things come up. Life things come up. Yeah. One time I had to leave. Uh, there was uh, somebody passing in the family, and uh, he told me to go play the main event. Uh, that happened one time. And uh, I said my goodbyes, and I hopped on the plane and uh, went and played the main event. And... You always have to play the main event because it is magical. It is everybody on earth who has $10,000 seems to be in it. And whatever percentage you have of yourself, it's going to be a good amount at the end of the day if you do well. And 
it's the greatest sweat, it's the, it, it's the most exciting. I'm feeling amazing right now. I feel like I'm doing the exact things I should be doing in my life. I'm really happy with my job. I'm really happy with my living situation. My family's doing well. I'm very happy about my diet, uh, my exercise. These are all things I cashed in the main event last year, and I was going through a divorce. I was, I want to say, 60 pounds overweight. Uh, obviously, don't really know much about what's going to happen at that time, so it's pretty scary. And these days, yesterday, I, I, uh, my my health and diet and fitness are under control. It's not where I want it to be, but it's progressing steadily. Yesterday, I just, I, I was, to give you an example, yesterday I had eggs and, uh, uh, well, I had a tofu sausage yesterday just because it was available very near me and uh, had that with some fruit for breakfast at night, I had zoodles. My girlfriend cooked for me that were absolutely delicious. Today, just feel amazing. I can't tell you how good I feel these days. It's, uh, it, I might not sound like it right now because, believe it or not, waking up early enough to write 4,000 words before you do four lessons is a bit draining. But uh, <laughs> I am very... I'm just grateful. The other thing I'm really grateful for is I went out to Vegas this year and I just saw everybody struggling. These guys did not manage their money well. Uh, they, not that I'm anyone to judge on that matter, but these these guys didn't do that well and they're looking for a handout now. They're trying to go into the coaching game. And they just don't have it. I have my hundreds of pages of uh, articles I can send as homework. I have video after video I can send of homework. I have my Rolodex, my 2,000 students. And I realize without my students, I'm nothing. And my students are some of the best people I've ever met in my life. I can say that in full confidence. And we're, I realize it's about building relationships these days. And I just made a private chat room for all of my students. They're all really enjoying that. They're really loving that. And we're doing, I've, I've, every time somebody's booked a lesson over the last six months, I've made it a point to get it done as soon as possible. The schedule has always been full. I've never been wanting for anything, and I'm very, very blessed. So I'm feeling much, much better this year going into the main event. Much more grateful to bring this all back home to the beginning. I, I feel much more grateful and happy these days than I've felt in a very long time and healthy. So I'm really, really looking forward to this main event. And, of course, at poker tournaments, anything can happen, and usually you're not going to be the one in that winner's circle, but... The way life is, the way things develop, I would not be surprised if I was at that final table here in a couple weeks. So you watch out for me if you sit down next to me. Good uh -huh. luck to you.
Well, that would be a great episode to do, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that episode too. I'll keep doing this if uh, just for fun, even if, even if uh, I do take this thing down. That's my promise to you guys. Okay. Okay, you okay. had that. That's bite. That's binding in the state of Arizona or wherever you are. State of state of New York. New oh York. yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. where you're residing or whatever. Okay. Um, right, uh, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for your coaching, your webinars, etc.? Write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com if you want to talk to me about coaching, if you have any questions. Just know it is near the main event, so do expect a few days turnaround on that. Uh, and follow me on Twitter at TheAssassinato. Subscribe to my newsletter on PokerHeadRush.com and check out the blog. I'm updating the blog regularly again on PokerHeadRush.com, so be sure to check that out. And, uh, yeah, guys, thank you for all the support through all the years. I can't wait to keep this party going. Yeah, do check out the blogs. I've read the most recent ones as well. I've always That's how I first got in touch with Alex, when he, back in the day, the old blog. And uh, I always enjoy them, Alex, so it's good to see you doing that again. Um, okay, uh, thanks for everyone writing in. Um, again, I was a way to end without being grateful for that. Um, <laughs> so thanks to Alex for joining us. And um, everyone have a great week. We'll keep an eye on Twitter feeds for Alex in the main event. And I'm sure everyone will join me in wishing him a lot of run good and good situations pop up. And uh, good luck, Alex. And we will speak to you next Thursday. I'll be in well. Sounds good, Barry. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Every day at America's Card Room, players just like you are scoring big in record time with Jackpot Poker. Jackpot Poker is a super fast three-player online poker set and go. You pick the buy-in, and after all three players are seated, we randomly pick the jackpot. Yep, just three players. No more, no less. And for most jackpot poker tournaments, it's winner take all. Imagine turning a $40 buy-in into the ultimate $100,000 game of poker. Anything could happen with jackpot poker. Play it now at America's Card Room.